Okay, if you guys would, find your seat. That, that was the quietest and quickest that that's ever happened. That's amazing. Um, so for the next four weeks, we're doing a mini-series on the seven deadly sins. Now, I realize the seven deadly sins is not at all a Protestant concept. It came, really, it came out of uh, Pope Gregory the Great and some work by Thomas Aquinas. So we're thinking, like, before 1300, what they were trying to do is come up with a list of vices, deadly sins, and then the corresponding virtues that go along with that. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at those. We're going to look at two this week, two next week, two the week after that, and the one the week after that. I think that adds up to seven. And I hope that's the case. But I'll be quite frank with you. Quite frank. In it as much as I really enjoy preaching, and I'm looking forward to this series, I'm looking forward to the series after that even more. Uh, because starting the week after Labor Day weekend, on September 8th, we're going to do an eight-week series on grace. The very nature of Trinity is built on the concept that grace changes everything. I mean, that's even our tagline. That's on our cups. And we actually do believe that. And I believe that it's especially important in a, in a place like Owasso and in a time like this, where it's very easy to go to church and to be told what to do but not walk away transformed by the grace of Jesus in the gospel. So I'm really looking forward to that. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not looking forward to this series, which I am, or we're going to be begin this week on it. So if you would, if you're willing and able, let's stand, and we're going to read, I'm going to read Scripture as you follow along on page 9 or on the screens. Hear now God's word from Luke 12, 22 through 34, the second part of the passage that Paul Delorier read earlier. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither reap, neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat 
and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The seven deadly sins enumerated are greed, envy, sloth, wrath, or sometimes called anger, lust, gluttony, and pride. And this morning, the two that we're looking at are greed and envy. And they're closely related, and we're going to see how that works. But here's how it's going to go this morning. I'm not going to stand up here and say, greed is bad. Envy is bad. Stop being greedy and stop envying stuff. That would have been a much easier sermon to plan. But that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm going to tell you. What we're going to do, we're going to look at both of these sins, both of these heart desires, we're going to ask these three questions. How and why does this particular sin work in us? How and why does it work in us? Number two, what does each sin produce in us? And then number three, we'll ask at the end, how does the gospel address these two sins? So how and why does it work in us? That is, how does it have power? What does it produce? And then how does the gospel address these sins? So we're going to start with the first one, greed. 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 Pleonixia in Greek. If you look it up in a lexicon, which, you know, there's different things that we can all nerd out to. I nerd out in Greek lexicons. It's fantastic. It tells you all sorts of ways in which the particular word was used. This word, greed, is the same word that Jesus says at the beginning of your bulletin, if you guys would turn with me to page four. Jesus in verse 15 here says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, pleonixias, greed, covetousness, avarice, also used for insatiableness. It's this strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to, or, or to possess more things than other people completely irrespective of need. It's more and more. It is the man in the parable that Jesus talked about. He needed more and more. And as a matter of fact, he said, I want more and more, and even my barns aren't big enough, so I'm going to tear them down and build bigger barns to hold my more and more. But the thing is kicked off by this 
And you can hold your place here on page four, because we're going to use this a lot. In verse 13, Jesus, someone in the crowd says to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, I always hit this word and I wonder how Jesus actually said it. But he said to him, man, or is it, he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? It's like, I don't want to get into this. And then he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, all greed. For, one of, uh, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So the man comes to him and he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. If Jesus were, if Jesus were an attorney, he might have said, well, what does your father's will say, right? But thank God Jesus is not an attorney. There are wonderful and godly attorneys in this congregation. It's not an attorney joke. Jesus takes the man's question. He doesn't even answer it. He just deflects it. And he turns it into a teaching moment. Who made me judge or or arbitrator over you? And then in verse 15, he stops speaking to the man. The scripture says, and he said to them, the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all greed, against all covetousness. So what reason does Jesus give? He gives this parable, like like we just said, where the man, he gets more and more, and he tears down the old barns to build new barns to be able to hold it all, and then he dies. Quickly, quickly dies. What does that teach us? What does that teach us? I think we could take a page from the author J.R.R. Tolkien, who coined this term dragon sickness. Any of you have heard of that? How many of you have ever read or seen the Hobbit movies, read the Hobbit books? That's good, because they're great books. We've read The Hobbit not too long ago to our kids. He describes the main dragon in his book, The Hobbit, as a most especially greedy strong and wicked worm called smog, who later he says, dream dreams of greed and violence. What smog the dragon wants is gold. How much gold does he want? More gold. And he is consumed with this. What's interesting though, is that once smog is, spoiler alert, once smog is killed, The sickness continued to endure. Um, This dwarf prince named Thorin uh, Oakenshield claims his throne as the king under the mountain, but then dragon sickness falls on Thorin. And the only thing he could think about is his insatiable desire to fill this greed within his heart. And it turns him into a completely different person. Friends, by nature, you and I all have this dragon sickness. How does it work its power on us? How does it work its power? And here's how. Here's how greed, 
covetousness works its power on us, it's that we don't trust that God has actually given us enough. And so we do whatever we can to get more. We don't trust that God has given us enough. And so we do whatever we can to get more. We see this dragon sickness in children. This is my favorite version of greed or dragon sickness because it's not enough for a toddler to have a toy. They want all the toys, right? Toddler, let's say toddler, even with good vision, you hold him up, and what does he want to do if you're a glasses wearer? He wants to take your glasses. Why? Because he needs help with his eyesight? No. Because the glasses are his. This is really great and actually really quite comical when you have two that are like ours. They're 22 months apart, so they play together a lot. And they both have blocks. And they both are sitting in a mound and pile of just little wooden blocks, right? And one is holding one block and one is holding the other. And the bigger one takes the block from the smaller one. Why? There were blocks all around. Why? Because it's dragon sickness. It is dragon sickness in the little ones that they say, all of this around me is mine and this is mine and that must be mine too. I'm going to take it. We're all born into this. You were all like that as infants and toddlers. I was. It's in our nature, friends. It's in our nature. And when we see greed in ourselves, I mean, just, I'm going to give you just a moment. Think in which ways you tend toward greed. You know, someone once asked the industrialist and oil tycoon magnate, John D. Rockefeller, he said, how much money is enough money? And he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Thousand heirs want to become 10,000 heirs. 10,000 heirs want to become 100,000 heirs. 100,000 heirs want to become millionaires. Millionaires want to become billionaires. We've yet to see our first trillionaire, but I'm sure we will in some of our lifetimes. How much is enough? We can say that with any possessions that we're talking about. Greed works because we really don't trust God to provide every single one of our needs. That's why greed works. What does it produce? What does greed actually produce in us? I think it produces a couple of things. First, it produces a heart that opposes compassion. If you're a greedy person and you never have enough, whatever that enough is, you never have enough to give away. Greedy people are not compassionate people. They don't see others and sympathize or empathize with them and say, I'm willing to give away out of my abundance. The man in this parable could have well said, 
There are many poor around me, and I have very much. I could have enough for years and give some of this away, but he didn't. Why? Because he was covetous. He was greedy. So greed produces a heart that opposes compassion, but greed also produces a heart that radiates fear. A heart that radiates fear. If we put our trust in things or even in the accumulation of things, we're always going to be afraid that that's going to be taken away. Always going to be afraid that that that's going to be taken away. That, or we're afraid we're going to die. And then that's going to be taken away in that way. This is why you see many in history extremely wealthy people absolutely afraid of death. Howard Hughes is a great example of that. This is why you have so many billionaires on the southwest coast of the U.S. spending so much money, literally billions of dollars, into how to make a human live longer. Beyond our normal medicine, how can we make a a human hit 150, 200, 500? Because greed produces a heart that radiates fear. So let's turn then now to how greed and envy compare, okay? And here's how it is. Greed is a general desire for blank, okay? Whether that's more stuff, more money, more possessions, whatever it may be. Greed is a general desire for blank. Envy, however, is a specific desire for someone else's blank. You see that? Greed is the general desire for blank. Envy is... Your, a specific desire for someone else's blank. Fill it in. Whether that's money, possessions, or even abilities in situations. Envy, the Greek word thanos, envy, jealousy, also translated as heartburnings. Don't think heartburn, think heartburnings. Like what lights the fire of your heart, right? In a sentence, envy is the mingling of a desire for something with the resentment of another who is enjoying it and you are not. It's the mingling of a desire with the resentment that another is enjoying what you want and you are not. So it's kind of it's twofold, isn't it? Now, how, how does envy work? How and why does envy work within us? Take a look on page four, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In other words, I want that inheritance and I can't stand that my brother's having it. You see, what's happening here is based upon inheritance laws at this time. Typically, the first son would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the second son would get one-third. So based upon this son coming to Jesus, we can assume that he is the second son. And the older brother has already inherited everything, and he's, this second son is waiting for his one-third of the inheritance. 
What's really happening though? If we're to pull a Dr. Phil on him, what's really happening there, son? What we see is, it's not just that he wants his one-third. He envies his brother's situation. I wish I were the older son. Because then I wouldn't have to be going and asking him for my inheritance. What I find most insidious about envy is is not when we envy other people's stuff. I mean, my neighbor, my neighbor has two jet skis that sit in his yard all the time. Do you know how many jet skis I have? I don't have any. How often does he use his jet skis? Never. How often would I? Weekly. I envy his jet skis. I do. This sounds like fun, right? Go in, you're like, man, this house is a lot better than mine. I envy this house. Or, you know, you can name that. That... That's too easy, okay? Because that sort of stuff, I think it's easier to let go of. Because I see the jet skis and I go in, I start playing piano, and I'm not even thinking about the jet skis anymore. I think the more insidious things is when we envy each other's situations. That's what's actually behind verse 13. The brother that's coming to Jesus, he's not, it's not about money. It is about the situation. He envies his brother's place over him. He envies that he is the first son because he is the second son. And what I see behind it is not, this guy is saying, I want my inheritance, but it's not, I want my inheritance, but I wish I was the oldest son. He is envious of his older brother's situation. Okay? Envy is dangerous, It is especially so when envy is applied to other people's situations. Some examples. You have a child, but you envy the the athletic or the academic ability of your friend's child. You have a spouse who's the breadwinner of the family, but you envy your friend whose spouse makes more money. Your spouse has a particular weakness or shortcoming, but you envy your friend's spouse who doesn't have that weakness or shortcoming. You can see how deadly this would be, yes? And how this would produce deep and dark things when we envy each other's situations. When envy grabs a hold of us, what does it produce? What does it produce in us? It produces feelings of inadequacy mixed with anger. This is why I hate Facebook. And I use it as little as possible. Because you know what, I, you know what happens when I go on Facebook? What do I see? I see everyone is happy. Which is a lie. Because I'm a pastor. 
I know that you are not happy a lot of the time. I see that everyone's happy. Everyone is always on vacation. Mountains behind me, lakes behind me, oceans. I'm on Antarctica. You know, all sorts of stuff like that. That's a lie. You're not on vacation. You're scrubbing your bathroom floor right now. Especially the entirety of, I think, how Facebook is made up is to produce in us envy. There's, there's been many, many, many studies uh, that have already shown that people who use Facebook are significantly less happy than a control group who, who doesn't. Because you see everything that everyone else's stuff and everyone else's situation, it seems better than you. Because what are you doing? You're sitting on your couch with a lamp on and dirty laundry sitting next to you. It makes you feel inadequate. It makes you feel angry. But deep down, what does envy do? It gives you a heart of resentment toward God and toward others. When envy really grabs onto us, it causes us to resent God and to resent others. God, why haven't you given me those jet skis? He doesn't even use them. I'd use them. I'd take care of them. They'd be shiny and pretty. Or when you start applying it to other people's situations, whew, that is something. You could see how resentment would grow toward others and toward God. Friends, that's a barrier to community, to real, real community. Envy is saying to us, look, God is good to that person, but not to you. But Jesus says this, and his example is wonderful, isn't it? He says, God gives the lilies exactly what they need, and lilies are awesome. God gives the birds exactly what they need, and those ravens are awesome. He, God is, this is the summary of Jesus, God is good to grass. He is good to grass. He is good to birds. How much more so is he good to you, the one created in his image? You know, we all struggle with greed and envy. But friends, the gospel addresses it. How does the gospel address our greed and our envy? So in 2 Corinthians 8, in chapters 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul wants to take up an offering for the poor. He wants to take up an offering from the Corinthians, but he doesn't pressure the Corinthians. He doesn't say, hey, I'm an apostle and you have to obey me. There's sometimes that Paul says that. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't try to emotionally manipulate them. Like he doesn't show them a TV commercial with, with emaciated children on it trying to pull your heartstrings to get the Corinthians to give more money. He doesn't do that. You know what he says? If you have a Bible, you can turn here. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul takes Jesus' salvation of sinners into the realms where we most often feel greed and envy. He says, look, he goes, Jesus wasn't greedy or envious. Rather, he was charitable. And he was filled with absolute confidence that the Father is good to him. That's why he was willing to be made man to leave the throne room of heaven to be born in a barn, to live a very ordinary life, and ultimately to go to the shame of a cross for you. In Jesus, we see the exact opposite of greed and envy. The gods of this world, the gods of many religions, are greedy, envious hoarders who would dare to give you much at all. Our God is not that way. He emptied himself, as Philippians 2 says, and he became like you to redeem you. So what Paul appears to the Corinthians' hearts, he says, think of the costly grace of Jesus until you are changed into generous people but the gospel in your hearts. The solution, the solution to envy, the solution to greed is not try harder. Where will that get you? Nowhere. The solution is a reorientation to the charity and the generosity of Jesus in the gospel, where he poured out his own wealth for you. And so because of the gospel, you don't have to gather up as much as you can. The, the cross proves that God is going to take care of you. And because of the gospel, you don't have to envy others. Because Jesus didn't die just for other people. Christian, he died for you. You don't need jet skis. You don't need a spouse that doesn't have a particular quirk. You need a savior who died for you. Not just for everyone else, but for you. And so what makes us generous and grateful people isn't a redoubled effort to follow Jesus' example. What makes us generous and grateful is growing in our understanding of what Christ has already done for you, for me, and then living that out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our Savior was not greedy. Thank you that he was not envious, but he was the most generous and charitable man who has ever walked. We're thankful that you seek to turn us from our sins, not by saying, obey, but that you have given us the ultimate example in our Savior 
Not merely to follow his path, but to see how he has redeemed us from these things. In his name we pray, amen.